This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is Afternoons on Dubai Eye 103.8. Helen Farmer with you for a bit of a health special of humans and animals. We were starting off the show with Dr. Sarah Darwish, audiologist from Genesis, as we talked about hearing tests, hearing loss, treatments, and if you ever should... Put a cotton bud in your ear. It was Dr. Rose Logan, clinical psychologist from the Free Spirit Collective on hand as we unpacked postpartum mental health. Some of the common issues, some lesser known issues, and ultimately the power of a group and community to get you through some really, really tough times. Then turning our attentions to our furry friends. It was absolutely fantastic to be talking all things animal as ever in pets and vets. From diet to exercise, the text lines were open. Now, you regular listeners will know that we love talking health on the show. I love connecting you with experts who you might not know are here in Dubai, or maybe it's someone you couldn't get an appointment with for absolutely months. And I'm somewhat embarrassed to say that we've never had an audiologist on the show before. So we are putting things right today. We've got Dr. Sarah Darwish speaking to us from Genesis Healthcare Centre. She's here in the studio. She's got a doctorate in audiology from the state. She's been working in the field for almost two decades. And there at Genesis, working with all sorts of services for adults and children, including babies, including hearing loss diagnosis, hearing aids, um, educational assessments and more. So we can help with all sorts of things over the course of the next hour. And when I say we, I don't mean me, I mean you. How are you, Dr. Sarah? Thank you so much for having me. I'm well, thank you. We've already had messages for you. And I think this is a really interesting one because sometimes it's like a niggle or is this normal? Who do I go to? Is it a family doctor? Do I go straight to a specialist? Now, I mentioned a few things that you do in clinic there, but what is keeping you busy right now? Have you noticed any patterns or trends or anything you're like, oh gosh, that's that's popping up more and more? Uh, Yeah, definitely. Um, Paediatric assessments keeping me very busy. Lots of kids coming in, lots of middle ear fluid, um, difficulties hearing in class. Um, So that's where my educational assessments come into play. And um, some concerned parents about overexposure to sound for their children when they're using gaming headsets as well. So, yeah, lots of questions about that lately. Now, I was quite nervous to give you your headphones this afternoon. Yeah. I was like, oh, gosh, what is she going to think of the volume? So people that are wearing headphones a lot, by which I mean me and my colleagues and those who are gaming and those who might be you know, wearing headphones a lot for work yes. or even to escape the sounds of work. Mm. What are some of the parameters that we need to be aware of and what are your recommendations as a doctor? Um, so one of the first parameters we look at is the loudness. So if we're using headsets a lot, we should be looking to keep the sound level under 80 decibels. Um, and the sound exposure time limit for that per week would be around 40 hours. So if we're uh, over 80 decibels and 40 hours a week, then we're into the region of potential hearing damage. That's for adults. So children, it's less. But we, we need to keep on uh, an eye on exposure time and um, exposure level. Do you think our tolerance to loud noise kind of builds so I'm thinking about gaming in particular I'm wanting to feel like you're immersed in a game like you are you know you are watching something or even we're talking about the new Apple headsets about wanting to have that extreme immersion do do we get used to noises being louder and louder and louder Uh, we can especially in the short term so with sound exposure what happens is our little nerve endings in our ears they saturate with um, chemicals and um, it requires more and more sound to stimulate them Mm. so we can um, we can you know, need to increase the volume over time. Um, I particularly notice this if I'm on a car journey and there's a lot of road noise, I need to turn my radio up over time. And then when I turn my car on the next time, I realise, oh gosh, I was listening to that quite loud. So so yes, we do um, want more sound over time with exposure. I find myself driving home with the radio very quiet after having headphones on for three hours. I feel like we do get, we're all just really overstimulated right now. And it's interesting yeah. to think about our you know, our ears and that kind of health system taking a bit of a knock because yeah. of it. Um, Dr. Sarah Darish is with us in the studio today. We've had some questions about grommets. We've had um, questions about what are the options for hearing aids now? James saying my dad's hearing is definitely going, but he keeps muttering that this is easier than getting a hearing aid. So we'll be getting to the bottom of that. Plus some of the treatments. We're talking about earplugs next. When and why can they be useful?
Sarah Dowish is a doctor of audiology and a clinical audiologist at Genesis Healthcare Centre. We can help with all sorts of issues. We've had loads of questions coming in about little ones, but also older people too. Um, we were just talking there about, I guess, safety around our ears and, and volumes. What about earplugs? When might they be necessary? So there are three situations in which I would recommend earplugs. So the first one would be for keeping the ears dry in the case of a medical condition that requires um, that you know, doctors don't want the ears to get wet. Second one would be for sleep. So if there's something disturbing our sleep, whether it's construction noise or a snoring spouse, um, we can use plugs for that. And then the third situation would be for loud noise or um, loud music exposure. What would be your kind of gold standard? Because there's so many out there. I bought my mum some of those loop ones for um, for Christmas. And I'm not going to lie. It's because the Instagram algorithm was just throwing them at me every single day. And I was like, okay, fine. She wears earplugs. I'll get her some. But I know a lot of people are like, this is the material I prefer. These ones are the ones that stay in. What's, what do you like? Um, so the, each earplug has a different purpose. And um, what we look at is attenuation. So that means by how much the sound level is um, reduced. And so for different purposes, we would look at a, a low, medium or high attenuation level. Um, yeah, I get the same ads on my social media as well. <laughs> so I see them pretty. a lot. Yeah, they are. They're <laughs> lovely looking. Absolutely. <laughs> I was going to ask you as a mum, are there any activities that you wouldn't let your kids do? But you did just tell me that your son's a drummer. <laughs> yes. And I always said that I would never let my son be a drummer. Never, ever, ever. But um, it's actually really good for rhythm and coordination, which is another area in which I, you know, I, I work um, with uh, educational audiology. So I absolutely see the benefit in doing those activities. Um, however, I have very strict rules on wearing hearing protection at the same time. A message here saying buddy phones for kids only go up to 75 decibels. I've raised several complaints in malls where there's some kids activities and music playing at 100 decibels. Yes, I have a decibel meter in my backpack. I think you found your spirit animal on 4001. Oh my goodness, but yes. I, I know what you mean. You do go into some, I'm not going to name any names, some places yeah. and it is overwhelming you know you really it sounds like such a granny thing to say you can't hear yourself think Mm -hmm. and the potential damage for for little ears is pretty pretty scary um 4001 if you do have any questions there um loki asking is hearing loss hereditary that's a big question um but i wondered if you could perhaps speak to that quickly doctor it is. It can be hereditary, yes. So there are certain types of hearing loss which run in the family, whether that be through the mum's side or the dad's side, or it can skip a generation. There's all sorts of conditions that can be hereditary with hearing loss. Now, I've just been butchering some Italian pronunciations. Now I'm going to butcher some medical pronunciations. You also deal with tinnitus. Yes. I'm like tinnitus, tinnitus, I don't know. Um, management in, in clinic. What is it and why does it happen? So tinnitus is any kind of ear sound that we experience. So it's not the kind of ear sound that you will have temporarily that comes and goes within 30 seconds to a minute. It's the kind of sound that stays around. Um, People can experience it um, acutely, so for a week or two, and some people experience it chronically, so for over many, many years. That must be beyond infuriating. Mm. And also in terms of trying to articulate what you're experiencing, you must be very practiced now with you know decades of this in terms of asking the right questions. But for someone who must be struggling with this, to try and get the information so you can start the treatment must be really complicated. Yeah, absolutely. So it takes a lot of questioning of the of the patient to understand exactly how and when it appears and how it affects their daily life. We use questionnaires sometimes as well because some of the um, questions are difficult for the patient to discuss and for us to discuss with them. So we use questionnaires, but, you know, we have a very, um, very good look into their history and, and um, their hearing as well. Is it curable? There is no cure for tinnitus, unfortunately. So um, once we identify that someone is experiencing tinnitus, we can equip them with tools to help them cope with it. Um, that can be through um, thought processes, give, giving them some, um, some you know, mindfulness tips, that sort of thing. And we can also work with um, sound therapy as well, helping them to sort of cover it up. That's um, really interesting. Yeah. Um, Dr. Sardarish with us today from Genesis. We've had questions about little leaky ears and grommets and small ones. Uh, also about older people too. James looking for 
for some answers about treatment for his dad. Aditi saying, can your doctor help with dizziness and vertigo? I've had it on and off for 10 years. I've just moved to Dubai. This content is for informational purposes only and is not intend to substitute professional medical advice, diagnosis or treatment. in studio from Genesis we've got Dr. Sarah Dawish she is Doctor of Audiology, Clinical Audiologist we've been talking about testing educational assessments in kids hearing tests, uh, tinnitus we've got loads of questions to get through and we've got Chloe in the studio because I think you're probably asking what a lot of people are thinking. I just, I love a Q-tip and I know it's so wrong, but I'm like, what other options do I have? Okay, so let's just say there's a wax situation. And listen. I did say I'm a waxy gal. A waxy gal. <laughs> I've seen a video of an ER doctor saying, guys, get your eargasms somewhere else. The, Q- <laughs> the Q-tip is not the answer. Come on then, doctor. What's the professional take? Uh, Q-tips should never go inside the ear. I'm sorry, Chloe. I'm I'm really sorry. So what's plan B for our waxy girl? (laughs) Plan B. um, Well, best is to just leave it be and uh, allow it to accumulate. Um, It will clear out on its own naturally. It's a part of the ear's natural cleaning process. And if it gets too much, then to see a doctor. Okay, Okay, I'll be booking an appointment. (laughs) Sales of Q-tips plummeting (laughs) across Dubai. Um, I wanted to ask you, my husband watches all the gross videos. He watches Dr. Pimple Popper. He watches the Toe Bro. And now he's got into sending me uh, unprompted and unwelcome videos of earwax being cleared out. Mm. Um, If it is getting to the point where it is impacting your hearing, syringing rather than candling, it would be your recommendation. Yeah, absolutely. So you definitely don't recommend ear candling. Ear candling can leave a waxy residue in the ear, so it will only add to the problem. Um, so yeah, wa- um, manual manual removal by an ear, nose and throat doctor is the best solution. And um, sometimes if it's really, really hard, um, then we can use some softening um, uh, substance first. Have you had anyone do them? a mischief, as my dad would say, with a Q-tip, some serious damage. Yes, yes, absolutely. Somebody just going too far, overzealously cleaning the ear. And uh, yeah, I've seen it a couple of times. To the text line we go. Um, Cole says, um, hi both, struggling to hear properly at times. TV's up loud, was at a family event last week and couldn't join in. Everyone was talking, I could hear noise, but not actual words. But I think it's more of a mechanical thing because when I pop my ears, holding my nose and blowing, my eardrums pop and I can hear again, what could it be? I'm 48, otherwise healthy, I think. That's from Cole. Um, hi, Cole. Um, yeah, so I think that you should get a little checkup. It sounds to me like you might be a bit congested. Um, best thing to do is to pop along to an audiologist or an ENT and have a checkup and perhaps a hearing test. Okay. And um, this is from Rach saying, Hi both, my almost two-year-old is having grommets fitted due to delayed speech and language plus consistent fluid build-up and hearing tests. How quickly can we expect to see improvement? He has really limited understanding, a few words, um, and can only say one, which is quack, like a duck. He makes lots of um, maga, ba sounds, doesn't really babble. Um, We'd love to see an improvement as a result of this procedure. So Mm. would you mind explaining a little bit about about what grommets are, the functions that they serve, and ultimately what Rach and the family can can expect with that procedure and afterwards as well. Yeah, sure. Um, so a, a grommet is also known as a, vent, a ventilation tube. So that's placed into the eardrum. And what it does is it serves as a secondary ventilation um, for the middle ear system. So usually the middle ear system is ventilated and drained through another passageway that drains to the back of the throat. But sometimes in cases where that's um, blocked or congested um, and inflamed, the middle ear doesn't function as it should. So, so the grommet is uh, in a re- replacement for that. And in terms of the impact it can have, she's saying there, you know, consistent um, fluid buildup, you know, saying there links that they've drawn, you know, it looks like the sun with a doctor as well on delayed speech. What can happen if, uh, you know, hearing problems aren't picked up or there is this consistent fluid buildup on a child's development? 
Uh, well, the uh, hearing is quite simply the gateway to speech and language. So if the hearing is impacted by consistent um, middle ear fluid, then we're going to see that knock-on effect with speech and language. Um, so we'll see speech and language delays, um, decreased understanding, um, difficulties with communicating, um, and uh, and perhaps even in severe cases, sometimes children might seem a little bit off balance as well because mm. their hearing sense is, is giving them the wrong information about their environment. Rufus is asking, do Bluetooth headsets pose any long-term health risks? Uh, we've also had questions about what, what do hearing aids look like in 2024? This content is for informational purposes only and does not intend to substitute professional medical advice, diagnosis or treatment. We're in conversation with expert audiologist Dr. Sarah Dawish. She practices at Genesis there in Science Park, but we've stolen her away from a very busy clinic to answer my questions and yours because we've never had an audiologist on the show before. And interestingly, you're very popular, and I think I think I know why. Oh. Because obviously, you know your stuff, but also it's quite hard to know where to go f- for advice. And you know, it's it's interesting to think about that process of you know, do I go to a family doctor and then I get a referral? Do I go straight to an audiologist? And you were talking earlier about you doing educational assessments and that can come via schools. And it's interesting that as parents, we the onus is on us, I guess. You know, there's no community screening. It's not like you're going into schools and seeing the whole of year two and checking their hearing. It's it's up to us as parents to be recognising in our kids and I guess the school plays a role as well. So it is your last chance to get any questions in. Rufus saying on 4001, do Bluetooth headsets pose any long-term health risks to the ears? Um, so there's, I think that's a, that's a two-part question. So first of all, with Bluetooth. So we know that um, Bluetooth is very low energy um, signals. So um, the harm from that would be negligible. The other part of the question would be an, um, the uh, headset use itself. Mm. So going back to the use of headphones, so keeping it under 80 decibels for 40 hours a week would be the recommendation. And the, I, I guess part of the issue with headsets and, and Bluetooth is that they're highly portable these days. So we have the ability to take them with us anywhere we go and connect them to our smartphones. And so we're listening to a lot of high quality sound very regularly mm. through our headsets. So they can be harmful if we use them too much or too loud. Everything in moderation. Absolutely. Um, and James says, hi both. Um, what options are there for hearing aids now? My dad's hearing is definitely going. He's 76, but keeps muttering that this is easier than getting a hearing aid. What and what ops are useful? So I don't think he's listening. My father-in-law staying with us right now and he has his hearing aid, which he wears sometimes. <laughs> and it's fun. Um, um, so what are the options in 2024, you know, for a gentleman in his in his 70s for making his life and I guess everyone around his life as easy as possible? So hearing aid technology has come on leaps and bounds over the years. And I think that there's still a lot of stigma around about um, what hearing aids used to look like. So they were usually big and beige. Um, now that's not the case. So we have lots of tiny little hearing aids, colours to match the hair or skin or fun colours as well. And we have lots of features available. Um, the, one of the biggest and one of my favourite is connectivity to smartphones. So we can connect directly to smartphones and use our hearing aids as as headphones now. So we can correct for the hearing loss and um, connect to our smartphones with these devices. We have tinnitus masking for people who suffer from tinnitus. Um, We also have um, some very, very advanced speech enhancement and noise reduction uh, features, artificial intelligence. And we are now heading into the AuraCast compatibility era. So we have so many hearing aid features to talk of. Um, Thank yeah. you. James, if you want doctor's details, just send me the word doctor and I will send it. You might be having a bit of chat with my father-in-law before he heads back to Scotland next week, sending Mr. Mr. Farmer Senior your way. Very last question. We've only got a minute. Um, but I think a really important one from Aditi saying, can your doctor help with dizziness and vertigo? I've had it on and off for 10 years and I've just moved to Dubai looking for a doctor. 
I can certainly help with some advice if they want to get in touch. So I've been a vestibular audiologist for, um, I would say, going on 16 years now. Um, I don't currently um, have the tools available to assess, but obviously um, lots of experience in the area, so I can guide them on the right people to see if I can uh, you know, get in touch with them and talk about that a bit more. There you go, Aditi. You sent a message at the right time. Uh, Dr. Sarah Dawash, thank you so much for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure. I'm going to have a quick adjust of my headphones, so I'm in your good books. Uh, doctor is there as a clinical audiologist at Genesis Healthcare Centre. This content is for informational purposes only and is not intend to substitute professional medical advice, diagnosis or treatment. I held a friend's new baby the other day and two things came to mind. One was, take me back. And the other was, never again. (laughs) (laughs) Dr. Rose Logan is in the studio with us today. She's the Director of Perinatal Psychology and Women's Health. She's a clinical psychologist at Free Spirit Collective and is really passionate, as we're going to be hearing now, about postnatal wellness, mental wellness, mental care. Your mum as well, which I think is a really important piece because we've we have we have had in the past, only once or twice, a few people that are experts in children or parenting but haven't got children themselves. And I'm like, oh, that's nice that you think that that would help with the picky that eating. Good, yeah, possibly in reality. There's that no one, no, no such perfect parent as one who hasn't got children. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I wanted to ask you about why this is an area that you really wanted to help women out in, in particular. And I know you've been practicing psychology for, well, I don't know how long. Quite a long time. I think if you put it all together, it's about 20 years. But not all of that has been so focused on maternal and infant mental health. It's really been in the last, uh, probably about the last eight years that that focus has really come into play for me. And do you feel like that's because the conversation the wider conversation has changed about maternal mental health? I think partly that's right. I think people are more aware, people are more open to the conversation around maternal mental health, even the terminology around things like postnatal depression, people are more familiar with. Um, It's slightly in my blood. Um, I have a mother who's a clinical psychologist who did a lot of work, still does a lot of work actually, even though she's retired in the area of maternal mental health. She must have been well ahead of her time. She certainly was. She was quite a groundbreaker, I think. That must have been a real lifesaver to the woman that she worked with back then. And and she worked very much with women who were um, in real need of that care and real need of that support. So very much on the fringes of um, their social networks and, and needing that support. And I think that's a really important point that unfortunately there are so many women who will be, and we're going to talk about some of the issues that can come up after after giving birth, so many women who are going to be deeply, deeply mentally unwell but not have the ability to recognise it in themselves or if they can not know either through confidence or through contact how to get the help that they need. How big a problem is that? Uh, Listen, I think again to your point of of how the conversation has widened and there is just more information available, I still think that a lot of women don't know where to turn Mm -hmm. Um, and there's stigma still attached to struggling after you've had a baby, especially a baby that you've perhaps yearned for and wished for and wanted for a long time and then suddenly here they are and you find yourself not feeling okay. You You find yourself feeling low and tearful and anxious and isolated and struggling. Um, And it's hard to say that out loud sometimes to people. So unless you've got people around you who can kind of give you a bit of a nudge and pick you up and help you out and guide you a bit, or you already have some knowledge, Mm -hmm. then it can be hard to know. Do you think anything can prepare you for new motherhood? Funnily enough, I was having this conversation with a group of new mums this morning, and we were really saying that not really, (laughs) You know, I think there's all the literature in the world you can read. There's all the the stories and the conversations, which help for sure. Um, But you don't know how you will feel personally. Exactly. It's such a unique individual journey. It's true. You can can read all the the, literature you're saying, whether that is, you know, factual books, the what to expect. Although I have to say, I feel like the books have got better recently. I agree. What to expect is a really boring read. Um, But sometimes you worry about knowing too much and it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy of like, oh my God, motherhood's horrendous and it's going to be so miserable and I'm going to be so lonely and I'm going to get postnatal depression, which can then inevitably feed into. Exactly. And then you can often have this conversation of like, why did no one tell me that there is no place lonelier than breastfeeding on the edge of the bed at three o'clock in the morning. Absolutely. And I think even people, like you said, people who had conversations and read books and um, 
still sometimes find moments where they just think, how did nobody think to tell me about this? The mm-hmm. rawness, the vulnerability, the the loneliness, as well as the joy. Let's not lose sight of, of that as well. Absolutely. Dr. Rose Logan is with us today. Um, she is a clinical psychologist at Free Spirit Collective and has been running a postnatal, what you call a postnatal mood group. Tell yeah. us about that. It's, so, about, it's been about a year now. I have been running it for almost exactly a year and it's it was hard not to kind of shy away from calling it what it is. Um, it is a clinical offering in the sense that it is for women who are experiencing some symptoms of either postnatal depression or postnatal anxiety or a combination of both. So it wasn't really just a support group, although it is, I hope, very supportive. Mm-hmm. Um, it does address the clinical nature of some of the symptoms and some of the, the problems that women can experience. So I was kind of keen not to shy away from calling it what it was but it was also hard not to make it sound too too heavy as well yeah well it's much needed we're going to be talking next about the basics of some of these issues that so many women face um through hormonal changes through mental health changes dr rose logan with us we've had a message here about safeguarding for the future an anonymous message asking about is there a way to protect yourself from postnatal depression you had it the first time and now worried about getting pregnant again um and what is the you know the pros and cons, I guess, of, of being in that group setting. We were just talking yesterday with Dr. Thryer about collective grief. Can it drag you down as well as bring you up? Um, Dr. Rose Logan in the studio. We are talking maternal mental health now with Dr. Rose Logan, clinical psychologist at the Free Spirit Collective. She's been running a postnatal mood group for the last year, supporting new mums. And I, I wondered if you could... I guess kind of demystify that for me a little bit and explain how it works, you know, at what stage women are getting involved in that group and some of the things that you're talking about, the tools you're equipping women with as well. Sure. Um, it's interesting because I think we get some mums who are, are turning up to the group very, very early on in their postnatal journey. And initially I wasn't sure if that was helpful, but actually I've had quite a few women who've come with two weeks old or three week old babies. And partly just because they have an awareness of themselves and their own mental health and they feel like it would be really helpful just to kind of get on board with it as soon mm-hmm. as possible. Um, and then some women who are coming to the group a bit later, maybe with a six month old or maybe even with a one year old um, to to help support their journey. That must be really interesting in terms of the different challenges faced at those different stages because, you know, you think two, three weeks into me, I mean, that was like the hormone was just bananas. And then when you get to that six month to a year, the issues that were coming up for me in, in motherhood were around identity, around, you know, loss of confidence back at work, you know, trying to know what my place was. Um, how are you kind of addressing the, all of these all of these things that must be coming up for mums? Yeah, I think often when women are coming with very little babies, it's because they've already had an experience previously. So they might have a slightly older child already. Um, and so some of the issues that like you said around identity and um, getting back to work and things are, are already in play for them anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, there are sometimes different needs. But the lovely thing is that because you've got people in the group who have perhaps trodden, trodden that path in front of you, there's a lot of support that comes from both directions. So um, mums further through the journey are able to say to a newer mum and say, listen, yeah, I've, I, that, I completely understand. I felt exactly that way too. And that I think is probably the magic of a group. Absolutely. Is that it's validated by people who are really in the same boat. Can we talk about when a new mum might need professional mental health? And I guess I wanted to ask you, to really, you know, pretend I'm a 10-year-old, maybe not 10, <laughs> pretend I'm a 15-year-old, um, about some of the issues that do come up um, pre, I think, you know, prenatal anxiety is a very real thing for yeah, a, lot of, a lot of women, but also post as well. What are some of the, the biggies, I guess? Yeah, so I think um, in terms of anxiety, pre and postnatal anxiety is probably a little easier for people to, to imagine because I think most people have had some experience of anxiety, whether it's clinical or not. Um, and so excessive worry, overthinking, catastrophizing, um, perhaps becoming a bit obsessive and checking things and managing things, even tipping into maybe more OCD type behaviours of overcleaning and overchecking and um, perhaps visiting the doctor a lot or needing a lot of reassurance on things, not being able to sleep because of the worries. So that would be maybe from the anxiety perspective. 
always future focused, always worried about the, the kind of the uncertainty of what next and how will I do it and the what ifs um, when it comes to anxiety. And then if it's low mood or even tipping into a more clinical diagnosis of depression, it might be feelings of worthlessness, it might be tearful, it might be feeling overwhelmed, loss of self-esteem, um, dissatisfaction with themselves, isolation lots of different uh, manifestations which I think any human being can understand but is kind of really magnified by also being sat at home holding a baby and trying to get your head around sleep and feeding and uh, kind of finding your way back to your identity as well. I think the exhaustion um, was <laughs> it's a very real factor yeah. but uh, we've had a message here saying um, can women have a predisposition to maternal mental health problems if they've had mental health problems before? So I think that ties in a little bit to the question that you'd mentioned before the break as well. I'll try and kind of answer them both together. So what we know about postnatal depression, postnatal mental health is that any previous history of mental health is a risk factor, but that doesn't mean it's causal. So it doesn't mean that because you've had a mental health problem in the past or even you have a family history that you will undoubtedly have postnatal depression. It is a risk factor. So it's something to be aware of. And that kind of links back into that other question of is there anything you can do to prevent it? Mm -hmm. um, and again, there isn't an easy straight answer of, you know, take this pill or do this exercise. or But there are things you can do. So if you know you have a previous history of mental health or a family history, then it's worth getting a bit of support before you give birth and just going and making yourself known to a therapist, building that relationship, getting that support, putting in place some really good lifestyle um, options. Um, so you're kind of ready to go that you're not surprised by it when it does, if it does happen. Dr. Rose Logan with us. Um, coming up after half past, I want to ask about how partners can best support in those first few weeks and indeed months postpartum. Uh, we're getting a good bit of balance on the text line here saying, please also mention that 3am breastfeeding was the best. No disturbances, no jealousy, only the baby and me and time. Oh, thank you for that. We've also a message going, please raise awareness around postpartum psychosis. It's not common, but it is important. This content is for informational purposes only and does not intend to substitute professional medical advice, diagnosis or treatment. Clinical psychologist Dr. Rose Logan in the studio today from the Free Spirit Collective. She's been running a postnatal mood group for the last year, supporting new mums at various ages and stages in their, I hate the word journey, their journey into motherhood. But it, it is a <laughs> it bit. It is a bit of a journey. It, it's a bit of a slog sometimes. Yeah. And you look back and go, gosh, look how far I've come. And it's quite, yeah. it's quite amazing. And I feel like, honestly, because, you know, people have babies a lot. Um, we often kind of downplay the physical toll it can take yes. on the body, but also, you know, just how much it can shake up some of the things you were talking about before, that sense of identity, confidence. We haven't even touched on the impact it can have on romantic relationships Absolutely. as well. Is that something that's been coming up? Yeah, so that's one of the sessions in the group actually specifically focuses on changes in relationships, both with your partner um, but also with other family members sometimes it brings up a lot for people in terms of their own childhood and being parented and also changes in their relationship with any other children they have as well mm -hmm. so we dedicate an entire session to relationships and and what happens and what changes I think what changed for us is when we had our first it kind of became very clear to me that my mum and dad were my primary family for 30 something years you know, got married. And then when we had a, a baby in the mix, it felt like a very quick shift to go from this is my primary family now. And that's not to say I deprioritize my parents, but sure. you, you you do start thinking about, a, a, about being a different dynamic. I think that's absolutely right for lots of people. And then for some people who perhaps haven't had that close connection with parents, it can be really powerful to feel like they've actually been able to create that for mm -hmm. their own children and for their own family. Yeah. Um, Lovely. Um, Dr. Rose is with us today. We've had a number of questions, comments, uh, and actually one here just saying, please raise awareness for postpartum psychosis. It's rare, but it's important to highlight. 
Could you explain what that is? We talked earlier about some of the common issues that are coming up. Yeah. You know, pre and postnatal anxiety, um, postpartum depression and, you know, the, the baby blues being just the very tip of the iceberg of a very, you know, big problem for, for a lot of people. But postpartum psychosis, would you mind yeah. expl- exploring that for us? Absolutely. I think whoever um, posted that comment, thank you for raising that because it is something I think a lot of people don't know or are not aware of, um, kind of formally called postpartum psychosis. And it is quite rare, which is a good thing because I think when it does happen, it can be extremely difficult for both the mother also the rest of the family the partner other family members and children as well the the recovery tends to be a little bit more intensive um, the treatment is a little bit more intensive than for things like postnatal depression especially if it's a more mild postnatal depression so what happens and what was, was it, is it something that happens in the brain? Yeah, so it's a change. I mean, the psychosis is always related to a change in perception. So um could be, uh, usually it's around senses. So it might be auditory um, hallucinations. It might be visual hallucinations. It might be sensory hallucinations. So different sensations of touch for things that are not actually there. Mm-hmm. Um, but it can become really, really traumatic for the mother. And especially if it relates to persecutory um, kind of ideas about the baby and about their role so it can be quite um, a sensitive situation mm-hmm. to make sure that mum and baby are both safe as the mum gets the right treatment for that. Dr Rose Logan with us today I wanted to talk, touch on treatment if you don't mind yep. um, about when might medication be advised when might, might it be useful and in terms of I guess the stigma around that if you are breastfeeding if you are yes. you know juggling Whatever's what, what, what's coming up in, in group when it comes to that kind of yeah, thing when it sure. gets to that stage. So if we think about kind of treatment for pre and postnatal or perinatal mental health, so perinatal refers to kind of the, the latter part of pregnancy into the um, first kind of six months of um, motherhood and beyond. There's so slightly different variations of the definitions, but um, milder to moderate symptoms are really indicated for therapeutic engagement, mm-hmm. whether that's a group program like the one I'm running or whether it's an individual session which often we, we're running as well for people who maybe got more moderate symptoms it's people who are perhaps having more severe symptoms that medication then becomes indicated for and the good news is that now there are medications that can be prescribed safely during pregnancy and breastfeeding they're limited so you have to go to a good psychiatrist who's aware of the, the, the correct medications to give you in your stage of your pregnancy or breastfeeding. Um, but there are medications out there predominantly given to women who are having more severe symptoms or more prolonged, intense symptoms. And then I guess this is, this is the kind of the golden question is when do you know how to come, when to come off them? Yeah. You know, I was on medication for postnatal depression for about five, four or five years. Yes. And I was like, oh gosh, I don't know who when I do would I be. Yeah, I don't know what I would be like without this. I don't know yes. who I am without and as it turned out absolutely fine yes thank goodness um, but that was a really scary thing because it was something of a crutch that had got me out of a really really tough time and thinking oh god I don't want to go backwards don't want to slide back mm. yeah, and I think that's the big fear for lots of people whether it's in the postnatal period or otherwise when you're choosing to stop medication that has been so valuable in helping you get back to functioning and enjoying life and engaging with things you love um Typically, we would recommend and psychiatrists would recommend that as well as having medication prescribed, that you also do some therapy work. And so you would hope that your therapist and your psychiatrist would work together to help you to make a decision for you about what's right um, and support you and kind of check in with you as you go through that. So even if you're not still doing therapy, it might be a good time to have a check in with your therapist and they kind of support you as you come off that. So you get that confidence that actually... Now that I'm through that, now that I've done the therapy work, I'm kind of more confident in myself as a mother. I actually don't need that. Dr. Rose Logan with us today um, from the Free Spirit Collective. We've had a message here. Can you please talk about single mums, not just those in relationships? Um, But we are going to talk about how friends and family can support during what can be a really tricky, beautiful time. But my goodness, it's complicated too. Dr. Rose with us through until four. This content is for informational purposes only and does not intend to substitute professional medical advice, diagnosis or treatment. In the studio now, it's Dr. Rose Logan, clinical psychologist from the Free Spirit Collective. Um, we're talking post and also prenatal um, issues, complications, 
um, some common, some some rare when it comes to mental health in women. And I think a really interesting point came in on 4001 Anonymous saying, can you please talk about single mums, not just ones in relationships due the end of March? Congratulations in advance. That last or that last that last oh, month can feel like a long time. Can so stretch out. I'm thinking of you. But that is an, an extra level of, yeah. well, I mean, practical complications f- for one thing, let's be honest. Yeah. But also the emotional side as well. What advice would, would, would you have? And she's not necessarily asking for advice, but just raising, I think, a really important aspect of, of parenthood here. Yeah, absolutely. And, and thank you for, for doing that. And I think, um, listen, I think anyway in Dubai, we have to work a little bit harder to build our support net. We don't necessarily have family next door. And so really making sure that you lean on the people who you have around you, good friends. Um, also making sure you've got a good network of um care in terms of doctors getting in touch with people like lactation consultants um lots of groups running that are not necessarily clinical groups like the one i have going at the moment Mm -hmm. that are kind of free that are not necessarily just coffee mornings which can also be really lovely but maybe something a little bit more intimate that you can kind of meet people who might be also starting off with a newborn and you get that sense of having a bit of a tribe yeah absolutely i think um I think that what I, a lot of people struggle with is like in other parts of the world, you know, when, whether it's like a health visitor or a lactin, yeah. you know, the onus is on the clinic to be like, hi, just to let you know someone's popping in. You're the one that has to be super yeah. proactive. And that's probably even more so the case if you are solo parenting. Yeah. I, I do think lots of the clinics now and hospitals now do have a little bit more of a tendency Reach towards out. that kind of men, um, healthcare. Um, what's it called? Uh, Health visitor yeah, like in the UK kind of pops in and checks in on you. Um, I, um, there are some really good Facebook groups as well. So if you want to reply, you mystery listener, um, with a thumbs up, I can send you some links that might be useful for solo parenting here as well. Yeah, fab. Um, what about friends and family and how they can support women post-birth? Um, I just remember my husband being like, I don't know how to help you. <laughs> as I'm <laughs> sobbing on do? the bed. What do you need from me? And I was like, I don't know how to tell you. Yeah. It's really, it's, it can be really, really hard. Yeah. And I think often the tendency for husbands, partners and, and other family members as well is that they want to fix it for you. And I think often women just want to know that you're there mm-hmm. um, and that you're happy to kind of sit beside them on the edge of the bed while they cry until you're ready to maybe think, actually, I do know what I need. And it might just be going out for a walk by yourself for 10 minutes, or it might be actually, I do want to go and speak to somebody about how I'm feeling. Um, I think family members are also often quite helpful in identifying when baby blues or, or kind of some of the normal changes that can occur postnatally Absolutely. are then becoming more concerning and just gently can encourage people to get in touch with a care provider that they trust or to help them get in touch with a psychologist or a psychiatrist if that's relevant. Yeah. Shout out to my mum. She came over two weeks and I was like, <laughs> mum, I need you to stay for two more. <laughs> and she was like, say no more. Change your ticket. I'll unpack the suitcase. Um, Dr. Rose, in terms of the frequency of the groups and um, how people can get involved, what's the, what's the best way of getting in touch with you and finding out more? Yeah, so they can email us at The Free Spirit. They can find us on Instagram. We've got a website. Um, the, the group runs for six weeks. It's a closed group. So when you come into the group in week one, you get to know the same group of women and you go through that journey together. And the first three sessions are very much on kind of skill building and managing your thoughts and emotions. And then the second three sessions are much more exploratory. Um, but you're with the same people. So by the time you get to those second three sessions, you've really built a trust and a rapport. Um, we do request the confidentiality of those groups as well. So um, they run for six weeks at a time. They're closed groups um, and we're going to have them running all year this year. We've kind of now got a bit of a process established. So I'm really hoping to keep them running even during the summer this year. Well, if you want details, you're more than happy to send me the word mum. We'll keep it simple. <laughs> Dr. Rose at the Free Spirit Collective. Thank you so much for your time. Pleasure. It's always an absolute pleasure. This content is for informational purposes only and is not intend to substitute professional medical advice, diagnosis or treatment. You're listening to Pets and Vets on Afternoons with Helen Farmer. With ProPlan, where the number one ingredient is always high quality salmon, lamb, turkey and chicken. So delighted to welcome the studio, Dr. Hibel Ahaj. Uh, we can help you with all aspects of vet care, of animal care, of whatever's stressing you out about your furry friend. Dr. Hibber, how are you? I'm good, Helen. Nice to see you again. Nice to see you as well. Um, loads to talk about. And um, we are going to be discussing all sorts of diet issues, supplementation. But first, I've got something intriguing to share. 
yesterday morning, I stepped out of our gate and outside our house was some giant dog poo, right? Now, we've got Cocker Spaniels. Their poo is not on this level. So do you know what I did? I got the ring camera out, went through the footage this morning and I've identified the culprits, both human and canine, and my husband knows them. So we are going to be having a little chat with somebody. So I just want to say, pick up your poo because we have ways and means of identifying you. And I'm not going to say your name on air, but just have a chat. All right, Dr. Hibber. I just yeah. was quite proud of my detective work because I went through my ring camera footage from 5.45 yesterday morning. I was like, oh, there he is, and the wife, and the dogs, and not a poo bag in sight. Do better, people. You give us dog, dog owners a bad name. Um, oh. well, that's a lot, I know. Um, 4001, if you've got any questions... We've already had photos coming in of our resident bulldog friends, Dave and Maggie, off to the vets. We've had Sir Gucci on the text line. Um, I wanted to ask you about actually a question that comes in quite a lot, which is transitioning dogs and cats to different diets, whether that is they're going from a junior formula to an adult, adult to senior, or you're switching brands. What are some of the things you need to know as a pet owner? And I guess maybe some insider info, Dr. Hibber. All right. So let's first address cats because they're the most picky. Uh, you know, cats are cats. What, what they like is what they like. And they're also into routine. So let's say they've been on kitten food for about 12 months and now it's time to switch them to the adult food. Or, you know, after spay or neuter, we need to move them to the sterilized adult for, uh, you know, it's higher protein, lower calories to prevent them from gaining weight. So, you know, for their benefit, we should be moving them to a newer diet. But, you know, in order for cats not to completely reject that new transition, not to completely reject that food, as well as to prevent gastrointestinal disturbances. Uh, <laughs> Sorry, that is the very, very polite way of saying the runs. The runs? Loose stools, yeah. all that stuff. Yeah. <laughs> I love how you say it like a vet and I'm like, they've got a dodgy tum. <laughs> yeah. So the runs may not actually be quite noticeable, especially if you have multiple cats at home. Mm. And, you know, we, we all just scoop the litter box without really, you know, checking mm-hmm. for the consistency, especially with cats. And, you know, their, their, their poo is surrounded with the, with the litter. So there is a way to, I mean, you can Google it. It's not going to be a nice site. It's called the... Uh, fecal scoring system. Lovely. So, <laughs> what a Google history to have. <laughs> yeah, the fecal scoring system is actually a, you know, a telltale indicator of the health of your of your pet. By the way, of your gut of their of your pet's gut health. So, if it's the runs, there's also different forms of the runs. It could be like mild or, you know, <laughs> severe. Or there's also even hard stool is is not. Quite normal. It could be a sign of dehydration. Further uh, in age, it could be a sign of, uh, you know, probably underlying kidney issues. So monitoring the the poo of the cat is can be uh, can be a nice indicator for gut health. However, let's say we want to prevent that from happening. You know, they're healthy cat. If you've been monitoring their poop, it's been normal. Uh, in order for us to prevent any of these underlying issues or, um, you know, in order for the cat not to also reject the new diet, mm-hmm. uh, the gold standard is uh, is slowly transitioning. So uh, you, you, keep, you keep stock of the old diet. So you start with, it should be over 7 to 10 days. And uh, you start with 75% of the old diet and you introduce around 25% during the first few days. And then you start adjusting over that time. And then you start, yeah, a few days later, 50-50. And then you, you gradually keep increasing, especially if you're measuring per gram, up until, you know, they're completely introduced to the new diet. There's also a lot of, you know, appetizing uh, supplements that can be added. Um, one of our probiotics, Fortiflora, one of its indications is appetite, uh, is, you know, as an appetite stimulant. 
Uh, we use it inside hospitals as well for, you know, fussy cats who refuse to eat in hospitals. That's interesting. Yeah, we just use it to, to induce appetite. There's clinical trials proving its efficacy as an appetite stimulant. Forty flora, that's what you need to know if you are transitioning or indeed you have got a picky cat and you're trying to tempt them, tempt them. Right, we can talk more on this in just a minute. Dr. Hibbert with us today. This is Pets and Vets on Afternoons with Helen Farmer. With ProPlan. Groundbreaking science, life-changing nutrition. Dr. Hibber with us in the studio answering my questions, but most importantly yours. We're just talking there about transitioning animals between diets, between brands even. And we've had a people, people saying, what, what was the name of the product you mentioned? Uh, Fortiflora, so probiotic there that can help with appetite, um, increasing appetite, whether that if they're poorly or if they're... Just being a bit picky. So so it is a probiotic. Uh, this is a chance also for me to uh, give some awareness to uh, customers. Uh, a lot of the times, you know, people, pet owners, they, they hear that, you know, their pet needs to go on probiotics. Also with the human medicine field, the, the science of probiotics and gut health is so in focus now. So uh, just a few disclaimers. Uh, probiotic refers to live microorganisms. So Guys, read the label. It has to be a live microorganism. And for us vets, we follow a lot of stricter rules like, uh, you know, we need to see the clinical trials behind it up from the moment it leaves the factory to the moment it enters the gut of your pet. What is the, you know, number and concentration of colonies that are going to replicate? That is for us to, to know. But look for the uh, probiotics that are extensively researched, extensively studied. There's not a lot of uh, industry regulations, mm-hmm. so you can find the research. That everything is online, guys. Do your research. It ha- probiotics refers to live microorganisms. There's also the prebiotics, which is more of the soluble fibers. You can you can find them in pet food. You can find them also as part of the probiotics. Uh, you know, with the with the postbiotics, symbiotics. That's a lot of you know unnecessary jargon for pet parents to to be confused with but ask your vet ask your vet about those things but honestly uh stick to the you know medical brands stick to reading the label properly from trusted resources do your own research online make sure it's live microorganisms because that is the one that is gonna make a difference in restoring the gut microflora and gut microflora is actually pretty crucial for overall, not only gut health, but overall systemic health, the immune system, everything. Would you advise doing a probiotic after a course of antibiotics like people, like humans would have? Or can it help if there have been some gastric issues in the past? Oh, absolutely. It's not like, it's not an option. It's not an, uh, it's not an advice. It's a necessity. Because um, with with the gut health, when we speak of gut microbial flora, it's all about balance. Mm-hmm. You know, we need a lot of there are a lot of bacterial strains that are beneficial for manufacturing vitamins, for uh, bile acids, for digestion, for even protection of overall systemic immune system. So, you know, when, when we take an antibiotic, it destroys all bacteria altogether. So we need to restore the good microflora, which for pet parents, consider just like for us. You know, when we go to a GP, we get an antibiotic, we get a probiotic. Same thing for pets. You know. OK, guys, we can help with all sorts of other things as well. Um, and actually, some of you are asking us the questions to help you out. Jenna is saying, hi, guys, recently got my younger brother, age 12, a gecko for his birthday. He's been looking forward to getting it for ages. Now he has it. He can't think of a name. He says something preferably cool and not cringe. Can you ask the listeners? We've had questions about making cats comfortable when you go on holiday, about introducing Steph to introduce her dog to her boyfriend's two cats. She's very nervous. We're going to get Dr. Hibbert's expert take. This is Pets and Vets on Afternoons with Helen Farmer. With ProPlan. Joining us in studio, delighted to welcome back Dr. Hibbert Alhaj. And I tell you what, it's going to be a busy one. We're going to try and get through as many questions as possible between now and five o'clock. And thank you for all of your messages. We had a, a, a message from Jenna before saying she's recently got a younger brother, a, a gecko for his birthday. Can't think of a name for him. Any suggestions? And they are, they're gold. They're, they're absolute gold. We've had Alejandro. Bernard, I don't know if it's Bernard or Bernard, but I feel like Bernard the gecko is, is, is stronger. Zacco, Rico, Gary the gecko, says Matt. I'm, I'm, I'm fond of that one, Matt, because we had a, a cat in our garage that we called Gary because 
lived in the garage. Um, there's no right or wrong, obviously. We're just giving some suggestions to Jenna and her brother. Let- Danny's been in touch, Doctor, saying... We're planning to go on holiday in the summer. We're going to be around for, away for about two weeks and we've got a cat at home. I was wondering what we can do to make her feel comfortable. We're going to have someone coming in twice a day to feed her, clean up after her and obviously spend some time with her. But is there anything else I can do so she doesn't miss us or feel lonely? Oh, what a good pet parent. What comes to mind? What comes to mind? Well, first of all, what is the cat like? Are they one of those like, you know, whether you're... You're here or not here? They're okay. They're independent. Or Aloof. are they? Yeah. Are they actually anxious? Are they already anxious? In that case, I would be, you know, more worried. Uh, I would actually prepare them ahead of time. Uh, you know, it's a good option that they're staying in their own environment. You know, cats are very fussy, fussy about that. Um, there's the option of adding pheromones. Actually, for I, I love pheromones. Uh, there's a there's a scientifically approved brand. It's all over UAE. You can even order it online from cat vets, from veterinary clinics. It's called Feliway. There's the plug-in version. There's the spray version. Uh, I, I love that. I think all vets and cat parents should, should love that. Uh, so this pheromone has been clinically proven to actually reduce signs of stress and even prevent stress-related issues. Uh, again, probiotics have also been proven to uh, help reduce stress and prevent stress-related issues, whether physically, physiologically, or behaviorally. Uh, Let the cat sitter come a few days ahead before Mm. you leave. So she would consider her, you know, someone friendly, someone they get used to. Uh, Whether the cat really requires people at home, you may also consider the um, the time spent for the cat sitter at home with the cat. Um, you know, mental engagement, you can leave a lot of these, um, um, I think there's these electric laser um, pointers, these things. loads of puzzles. My kids were watching on YouTube shorts the other day. I'm so embarrassed about this. Cats doing puzzles. Oh my goodness. Some of them were amazing. It was a Sphinx cat doing it. It's probably got its own Instagram account. But there seem to be some great kind of devices out there for mental stimulation too. Well, yeah, but... The puzzles are, are for also humans and cats to interact together. So, yeah, if, you, if your cat has been used to that, also we, we don't want to just introduce new things Suddenly. and lifestyle changes all of a sudden. So if your cat already likes puzzles, already likes the type of toys like chasing, hunting, you can provide that, just maybe provide them automatically. Uh, I love leaving the TV on with the bird cha- um there there's channels on youtube that are like live 24 7 with birds and cat videos with relaxation music Aww. for cats as well as honestly what is scientifically proven is having the pheromone plugins at home the sprays you can use that and check for your own cat what they're used to how many times the pet sitter would be at home and uh, whatever food you're already feeding them the litter no changes Perfect. Um, so, fellow where you mentioned there, and Fortiflora was the probiotic that you mentioned earlier. Yeah. Hope that helps, Danny. And I know it's early, but have an amazing holiday. I think it's great to be thinking about these things ahead of time. Speaking of which, Steph's saying, any advice on introducing my dog, Rescue Lab, age five, and my boyfriend's two cats, both 10 years old? She says, I'm very nervous, and has put about five exclamation marks. All right. So, a Labrador, they're a bundle of energy. <laughs> Labs are a, ben- a bundle of energy and 10-year-old cats, I would say they're the opposite, I'm just assuming. Uh, so again, in this case, we'd be, we'd be more worried about the cat's behavior and reaction and also worried about the Labrador's eyes. One of the emergencies we see a lot is, you know, cats scratching a dog's eye out. So let the introduction be gradual. Like when you introduce the dog into the cat's environment, it has to be into the cat's environment. Mm-hmm. You know, let it be monitored. Let the, let the dog be on a leash. See how the cats approach. Maybe they should be approaching, you know, especially with Labradors. I can imagine how hyper is going to be. Um, you know, it, it has to be gradual. It has to be gradual. And uh, maybe they would never accept each other. They would get to a point where they can tolerate each other. <laughs> or they would get to a point where they would become best friends. But they're cats. M- manage those expectations. It might not be one of those Instagram photos where you're like, oh, unlikely best friends or they're all curled up in the bed together but tolerance would be a, a pretty good goal yeah. and clip their nails oh yeah good clip idea. the cat's nails before <laughs> okay Steph good luck to you keep us posted uh, Dr Hibber with us today
This is Pets and Vets on Afternoons with Helen Farmer. With ProPlan. We've got time for one last question. It's been a really, really busy one today. Dr. Hipper with us. Um, We've had a a message um, on Pets and Vets, which I wanted to put to you. Um, This is from Nitin, saying, what is the best way to deal with heavy matting or dense knots in Persian cat fur. I've read online that olive oil can be an effective method. Can your vet suggest the ideal approach, please? Sounds stressful. What comes to mind? All right. So we already know with Persians, when you want to adopt, adopt a Persian, you need to know that you need to brush long-haired cats daily, especially like there are also some long-haired cats that are double-coated and the, the matting can go so deep. And it also depends on how long that matting has been. So prevention with brushing daily but since it's already happened we, you want to know what um, at what level the matting is how long has it been mm-hmm. uh, of course shaving it off is the solution do not get scissors and shave it off get it at a professional groomers and i would also be very selective with the type of groomers maybe choose one of the groomers at any vet clinic because what would be underlying these uh, un- underneath these mats would probably we may see uh, either skin infection, yeast infection. We, you know, it's it's a, a humid area that's mm-hmm. been, you know, a lot of microorganisms could could be harbored there. You know, you can just remove it and find fresh, clean skin. But the probability of having issues underneath is is there. Uh, but also the chance of you removing these mats at home. Imagine there's, you know. Uh, unclean bacteria under there and you scraping it off and that would enter the skin and that's a whole different issue so time to bring in the pros all right thank you so much for your time it's been an absolute pleasure to catch up thank you thank you um, for all of the amazing suggestions we've had coming in um we've had gordon the gecko we've had simba freddo the gecko i'm going to pass all of these on to jenna who recently got a gecko for her little brother please let us know what name he chooses And thank you for downloading this episode of the Afternoons with Helen Farmer podcast. Don't forget, you can subscribe. You'll get it direct to your phone as soon as it's out. And you can listen to me live on Dubai Eye 103.8, Monday to Friday between 2 and 5 p.m. You've been listening to a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. To enjoy lots more from Dubai Eye in the United Arab Emirates, just go to DubaiEye1038.com or find them wherever you normally get your podcasts.